0: Hey everyone, just a heads up, there's going to be some swearing on today's episode. When protests over the murder of George Floyd were first spreading across the country, our team saw this video from the Netflix show Patriot Act.
1: A black man was murdered in cold blood and we were on the fucking sidelines watching.
0: That's Hasan Minhaj, the host of Patriot Act, giving this really passionate speech about the responsibility of immigrant Americans to stand with protesters in defense of black lives.
1: I'm not saying we were the ones who killed George Floyd, but we have to be the ones who pulled that cop off his neck. We think we're not a part of the story, but we're at the scene of the crime. Fine, and what do you want us to do? How do you want us to support black America? I did the little... Black Instagram square, I had to tie the tough conversation with my family. Fuck that. This fake woke shit we do on IG dies in a week. We can't just knock out racism. We have to help win this thing on the cards. We have to donate our money.
0: This 12-minute video is called We Cannot Stay Silent About George Floyd. But as you can hear, Hassan draws a line, basically saying talk is cheap. Having conversations with our family members isn't enough. And he gets specific about what he thinks we need to do next.
1: Number one, end qualified immunity. Next, demilitarize the police. Three, vote out corrupt local officials. You have to Google when the election is, vote locally and get new officials into the system. That's on all of us.
0: It's been six months since the summer of protests began. That Congressional bill to end qualified immunity is stuck in the Senate. Policing in America is nowhere close to being demilitarized. And the verdict is still out on whether we'll see changes in state and local governments where these kinds of policies are decided. One thing that has gotten a lot of attention, especially on social media, is a call out to have conversations with our loved ones about anti-blackness in America. As basic as it might seem, that tough conversation that Hassan referred to is still incredibly difficult for a lot of people, including our own listeners. That conversation is just like fraught with
2: landmines, right? Like I actually pause and I think to myself, am I really going to do this? Like, am I going to end up in a pile of shit or am I going to be able to make it on through? My dad totally believes in the American dream because it worked for him. Then again, he's a doctor, and he doesn't understand that when you have an entire people enter the United States as slaves, I mean, that's that's gonna impact them, you know, 400 years later. And that's what I need guidance in. Trying to explain that the catch-all of, like, if you just work hard enough, you're gonna be fine is not true for many people. As immigrants who came here from the Philippines in, like, the 70s and 80s, like, they struggled. I can only imagine all the things that they had to suppress, repress, just stuff down deep within their bodies and souls to just make white people comfortable. And that's just like the challenge of assimilation, right? Like losing yourself, losing your identity in order to make white people
3: comfortable. I think when we think of bringing our families into our lives and our communities, We often hide ourselves, but in hiding yourself, you never get
0: to be the full person that you are. And if we come at it from a point where we make someone else wrong, uh, we can never make someone right, you know? This is Self Evident, where we challenge the narratives about where we're from, where we belong, and where we're going by telling Asian America stories. I'm your host, Kathy Erway. As we reach out to our loved ones during what might feel like the least celebratory holiday season that we've ever experienced, I'm finding out what it feels like to have that first conversation about racism with family members who've never really talked about it. I could not walk for
3: a week after. I had to take my dad's like 800 milligram ibuprofen just to like take care of the pain. So I was like, was it the weight of this racism conversation
0: that just bearing down on me? What kind of choices are beyond the limits of conversation? You know, if it's feasible
4: for you to live in a working class area and invest in the community there, do so and don't just correlate whiteness with desirability. And
0: how keeping those conversations going can give us the strength to make those choices for a more just society.
2: A huge part of our group is asking ourselves, what professional goals am I okay with just completely dismissing? Because achieving said professional goal is less important to me than having the time to show up for people in my life and to show up for these movements.
0: The first conversation I'm sharing with you today started when we saw a photo on Twitter from Dr. Anthony Ocampo.
5: Hi, I'm Anthony Ocampo. I am a writer, I'm a sociologist, and a professor at Cal Poly Pomona.
0: The photo showed a slide presentation on his computer titled, How to Talk About Race, the Filipino Family Edition. It was a conversational toolkit that he put together with his cousins when they started noticing family members sharing news stories that criticized the protests for Black lives. I called up three of the cousins from this group, Anthony, Paul, and Patricia, to hear more.
6: I'm Paul Ocampo, and I'm the director of development at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Asian Law Caucus, which is the nation's first Asian American civil rights organization and have been there for about eight years.
3: I'm Patricia Ocampo. I'm the baby. (laughs) I'm actually like a client's relations manager for
0: this media monitoring company. Anthony, Paul, and Patricia have a group text with their cousin, Ivy, who suggested bringing the topic of racism to a video chat that their entire extended family was having to keep in touch during the pandemic. It sounds like you have a lot of cousins. Like how big is your extended family?
6: Have we counted?
0: Uh, I think maybe, I think there's like 18 cousins on my dad's side. So just the logistics of this family conversation were a lot to handle.
5: We had about 30, 40 people on it, if I'm okay. calling correctly. Wow. And then a different generations, like seven to over 70, <laughs> seven oh years wow. old. So folks that were born here slash Their parents were born here or born in the Philippines.
0: Some family members had lived under martial law in the Philippines and had spoken out against President Marcos during the People Power Movement in 1986. And they understood how police brutality had affected their lives back then. But those same family members almost never talked about these issues as Americans.
5: I think it's important to note that in the Philippines, that was a place where what you say and what you write and what you believe or what meetings you attend on a college campus had the potential to get you killed or disappeared. And so when thinking about like my father's and Trisha's father's generation of Filipinos, I don't necessarily fault them for being reticent to, to be so open and vocal about certain issues because they, they grew up in a country where that could cost you your life.
0: Tell me a little bit about how you decided to put together this presentation for your family.
5: I had to remember the fact that unlike my students, my family is not required to listen to me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Patricia, you're giggling a little but What do you think of that? They're surrounded by people who are interested in this. And our family is, they do it if they have to, but it's not, you know, their everyday What's the weather like talk? Mm -hmm. So um, we had to kind of tailor it more to a general audience, you know, okay, something that would kind of
0: inform them, but also keep them engaged. The cousins still took a teach-in approach. They led a family prayer and set up goals for the talk. Then they presented a sort of 101 seminar on different forms of racism, the history of Black Lives Matter, and misconceptions about protesters. There were also moments encouraging family members to think about their own experiences with racism. While everyone was muted during the presentation, they were encouraged to ask questions and share their thoughts in the chat box by Patricia and her cousin Ivy. One of the
3: things that we wanted to establish with the presentation is we're not trying to shame you. We're just trying to provide you with this information so you can come to your own conclusions about things. So we did decide a little bit later on, like when we're completing this whole thing, that we should kind of open it up to discussion, if anything, to the Zoom chat, which I think was very helpful. Because, you know, especially with Asian families, you're like talking all over each other all the time. (laughs) So the chat was actually very helpful because people could, you know, if they weren't comfortable using their own voices, they could use the chat to kind of describe their own experiences. Because we did delve into like, how have you experienced racism in this country? And people, you know, they were actually willing to share. Some of them did say it out loud. And then a lot of people are actually very open in the chat about it.
5: And that was enlightening because I feel like some of them even noted that this was the very first time that they ever spoke openly about a, a racial experience or racist experience that happened to them 14 years ago. So as they were saying that, it made me see, like, perhaps for Filipinos, the strategy for racism has been to... Sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen and move on. But what that kind of comment showed is that even if it did happen 14 years ago, that
6: memory still is imbued with a whole lot of trauma and pain. Mm -hmm. We had to engage them on their own sort of experiences. When were you passed over for promotion because of your accent? Or when were you made fun of that accent? So those were the things I think that uh, made family members really engaged on, on the conversation.
0: What happened during it that, you know, was not what you hoped?
6: So when we were doing this presentation, we were wondering if our cousin, who's in the police force in Jersey, was going to be joining. He had missed um, a few of our Zoom calls. And so we were like, okay, he might be there, he might not be there. But in the case that he's there, how do we uh, make sure that, you know, we are talking about this issue in a way that also doesn't, attack him personally. There were moments when we showed some of the ima- recent images of police mm-hmm. brutality especially towards protesters and during the discussion he had s- reasons for the brutality. I thought we we shouldn't be engaging on the questions or be very defensive on the matter. But thankfully some of our own, some of our family members were able to just question him about about his reasonings,
3: They were bringing basically like counter-arguments to his justifications of why the police acted in the way that they did. Like when the elderly man was being pushed to the ground, he was trying to say, like, oh, that policeman was scared. Like, he was acting out of fear. And we're like, he's like this frail old man, and you have an entire army of police surrounding him. Like, how can you justify that with fear? And, like, the chat was kind of going off while he was saying it.
5: And I, I wanted to acknowledge that my cousin's thought process about these issues is not as one-dimensional as like one may think. We've had, for example, a really in-depth conversation about uh, a recent case involving Peter Liang yes. in in New York, mm-hmm. a cop who shot into the stairwell and ended up killing an innocent black man. And so um, he had a very complicated view on that and in the end, you know he he, he couldn't throw his support. For Peter Liang, even though, you know, the Asian American or Chinese American community was trying to say, like, hey, like, how come he's not getting away with the same stuff that the white cops get away with? Mm-hmm. Um, but because, you know, it just I, I wanted to acknowledge that, like, I know that he can think about these issues in a complicated fashion. Yeah. And, you know, to his credit, he's he's actually like invited me to to ask him questions and, and, and talk about, like, the job.
0: That cousin didn't change his views during the family call. But the goal of the conversation wasn't to persuade. It was to keep a door open when Facebook walls and group chats seem to be closed for genuine conversations about race. And often, the biggest hurdle people are overcoming when they open up that door is just feeling confident enough to try. That's true even for an educator like Anthony.
5: I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that going into this convo I was very nervous you know I teach for a living and I speak around the country everywhere from like predominantly white super red states to diverse places like San Francisco and I don't get that nervous but with my family Mm -hmm. I was super super nervous and after the convo I totally passed out
0: Patricia, how did
3: you feel? I don't know if it was because of this talk, but I was kind of having, like, back spasms throughout the morning. Honestly, like, in the middle of our presentation, like, my back just, it felt like I threw it out. I had to turn off my camera because I was kind of, like, writhing in pain. Oh, no. (laughs) But I was still, like, trying to stay engaged. Uh, Our more conservative cousins, I was like, no, that's not right. But, like, chatting. (laughs) So Anthony passed out right after. You're writhing in pain during (laughs) like really physical stuff it was so weird i could not walk for a week after i had to take my dad's like 800 milligram ibuprofen just to like take care of the pain so i was like was it the weight of this racism conversation that just bearing down on me (laughs) i think it actually helped though to calm me down because i think i might have been a lot more aggressive and angrier had Mm. i not been distracted with physical pain wow
6: i think like anthony i was Extremely exhausted. I needed a drink. Like I drank before the presentation, and then I needed five drinks afterwards just to <laughs> calm my nerves. Yeah, I've never felt so um, exhausted physically, but actually really charged emotionally and in some positive ways too. I was just like, we did it. We actually were brave enough to hold the space.
0: Holding that space. Stopping a conversation from breaking down into a bitter fight is challenging. Asian Americans across the country told us they weren't sure if these conversations would make a difference, if they would tear the family apart, or if they even had the nerve to try. When the Ocampo cousins presented their toolkit at the Filipino American National Historical Society, they saw these same feelings of apprehension.
5: We essentially gave a narration of how we thought about the toolkit and what we did and and how it went. And then at the end, we were like, raise your hand if you're going to have this convo with your family. And Trisha, do you remember how many hands went up?
3: I just remember it wasn't that many. (laughs) I think we had pretty good realistic expectations that nothing would be changed overnight. And, you know, my dad's He watches Fox News a lot. So I understand where the person or the people who are like, we can't change them with conversation. I think if anything that we've learned from this is that you should at least make an effort in trying. And if it doesn't, you know, go successfully or the way you want to, don't be so hard on yourself. Like, don't carry their weight with you.
5: And I also understand just from being a queer person, having grown up in this same family that. Progress is possible, right? And I also know that it's not always the facts that are going to be the things that change people's minds. Like I just imagined if I were to rewind back in time to to moments where I wasn't out or or even thinking about coming out. If I were to imagine myself like bombarding my family with a bunch of factoids, I, I don't think that would have necessarily changed folks in the same way of just living openly with my like queerness, you know. And so I imagine that in the future, we've already established that race and racism and racial inequality is an issue that's important to the four of us. And at least people like know now. My mom, she's an avid Facebooker. (laughs) And I was actually kind of surprised to see that she was posting about police brutality on her page, which is something that I wouldn't anticipate her doing. My partner's sister, for example, she actually went to... a a protest in LA after that, something about the presentation really ignited her to, to initiate conversations with her girlfriends about black lives matter, about police brutality. And so, whereas before that could have been a topic that would fall to the wayside because you don't want to quote unquote, make people feel uncomfortable. Now she was the one who was bringing it up and actually having a language to talk about it. That's, that's a success because the general default is that people don't talk about race and see it as a taboo topic and avoid it at all costs.
0: And so everybody is stressing the importance of uncomfortable conversations. Why is that discomfort an important goal to have?
3: Well, I like read a lot of um, spiritual stuff on Instagram. <laughs> so a lot of the things that are like reiterated are wherever you find discomfort, that's where you need to find growth. Like when I talk to my dad, I am very uncomfortable about it. But I think it's also a reflection of where your values lie.
5: This moment has enlightened me to the idea that I am pretty used to making my life as comfortable as possible when it comes to who I decide to follow on Facebook or unfollow, who I decide to engage with with Twitter. And it almost makes me miss a time when we didn't have all of these social media apps or... The internet wasn't what it was today because I felt like I was in many more conversations where I had to practice proving my point as opposed to just curating an audience that would be inclined to agree with me. I feel like we have a model to talk about complicated things. And it's a start and it makes me less afraid to address these topics that are causing harm, not just in our society, but also in in our own family, in ways that perhaps folks are just not um, as open about. Being able to understand what makes people in my family or in my community tick, that doesn't go away just because the issues that are on the news change. Mm
4: -hmm.
5: At the end of the day, like my family's always gonna be my family.
0: When people say uncomfortable conversations about racism, I think what often comes to mind is a dinnertime chat with that uncle who voted for Trump. It's easy to think of ourselves as educated people who live in diverse places and need to show other, less informed people, what they're missing. But some of the worst violence, discrimination, and denial of opportunity against Black people takes place in diverse cities like New York, Los Angeles and, of course, Minneapolis. And the racist boundaries that descended from slavery, like redlining and school segregation, shaped how generations of Black and Brown Americans have grown up across the country. It's also shaped how the rest of us pursue our dreams within those boundaries.
4: I think that one thing that is true across many groups is that many of us have built our existence in the U.S off of anti-Blackness, and as like Toni Morrison says, you know, like off of the backs of Black people.
0: That's Maya Bardwash, who just finished her master's dissertation on queer modes of solidarity between South Asian and Black activists in the U.S. and the U.K.
4: I work as a community organizer, facilitator, and trainer. I'm also an artist and musician. My work spans across racial, economic, gender, and, and uh, queer justice.
0: I hopped on the phone with Maya and her friend Reagan Wingate. They both grew up in the metro Detroit area in Michigan.
7: My name is Reagan Wingate. I have a master's in public administration from Wayne State University. Uh, the last five years, I've worked in the mental health sphere, working with people with autism, providing access to services and treatment for individuals on the spectrum.
0: Reagan was actually a little surprised to hear about the various guides and toolkits that Asian-Americans were creating to have conversations about racism with their
7: families. I've heard of them mentioned, but like, what really is it? Like, is it just like a conversation piece to their families to say, like, this is what Black folks in this country are, are like going through? like. What really is a toolkit, you know, a South Asian toolkit for families?
4: Yeah, and I think like the, that question is really important, right? Because there are guides for how to have conversations with our families about anti-Blackness. But if we're not like organizing in our own spaces and if we're not actually building relationships mm-hmm. with Black folks or, or even, you know, moving money towards Black communities or, or other marginalized communities, those conversations are ultimately hollow.
0: Maya recently wrote an article for Overachiever magazine challenging Indian Americans to go beyond showing solidarity with Black Americans on social media. She was writing from experiences going back to her teenage years when she and Reagan met at Groves, which is a majority white public high school in a wealthy suburb of Detroit.
4: We bonded because actually we used to sometimes sit together in the library like, over lunch to study, and I would make these mixtapes. She with, was like, the mixtape
7: the... queen, okay? <laughs> mixtape yeah. queen. LimeWire,
4: was, was
7: it? Was it LimeWire? Yes,
4: absolutely. <laughs> LimeWire, Kaza, uh, I was all about it. Mm-hmm. And so I had this mixtape with, like, a lot of I think, like, Aliyah and Ashanti and... Murder, Inc. Yeah, a lot of Murder, Inc.
7: (laughs) We owe Ja Rule and Ashanti, like, our friendship,
4: honestly, (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) They didn't fare as well, but we fared well. Our bond transcended
0: theirs. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They also bonded because they were among a few South Asian and Black students in honors and AP classes at the time.
4: I mean I remember really vividly how segregated it was. Mm-hmm. There was definitely a, a huge intertwining between class and yes, race. Among, absolutely. I would say the majority of the black students at at our at our high school were came from working class families and the vast majority of white students came from quite wealthy families and that made a big difference in terms of, you know, people's ability to interact in in class or in after-school activities or, or things like that. And even, like, the social spaces were really segregated, too.
0: This segregation at Mayan Reagan's High School was part of the deeper history of segregation in the Detroit area.
7: I know my family migrated to, from the South to the North because of the opportunities. And so Black people were actually able to ha- own houses and have, like, a, a well-deserved, like, functional life, you know? So I think that was a, another notion. Like Detroit was a city of people who, who had money, who were working class and um, with more people like working in the plants, they started moving into like areas that were mostly white areas. And that's kind of like what incited like the race wars in the sixties.
4: Yeah. It's about white people establishing dominance and, and trying to decimate any space where, Black people can live good lives, and and that's like the story of redlining in Detroit. People refer to it as the race riots in Detroit in the 60s, but they were not race riots. They were racial terror by white folks against black communities for the purpose of destroying black communities, and they were done also by the police and were facilitated by the police, which was a white police force and still is.
0: There is a lot of reading you can do about this. The legacies of anti-Black policies and violence in Detroit stretch back to the New Deal and long before. And these legacies showed up in Maya and Reagan's lives throughout their choices for school. Decades of white flight from the city of Detroit had left its people underserved, and its public schools poorly equipped to educate a majority Black population.
7: Reagan's parents moved to the suburbs specifically to get her into a better school. So that was a decision that my parents and my family made because there was not enough resources in Detroit to, you know, to to function. It's it's terrible.
0: Families in Detroit who couldn't make that kind of move would have to take other steps to get the education they couldn't have in their own neighborhoods. They could pay tuition to enroll from outside the district. Or some might have moved in with a relative who lived inside the district. We had a hard time digging up precise data about Mayan Reagan's time at Groves. But these kinds of choices have been made plenty of times by families trying to do better for their kids. And the result of this inequality was that Black students, whether from the district or not, faced social pressure and scrutiny. From 2004 to 2008, Black student enrollment in Groves fell twice as much as white student enrollment.
4: That number was was hugely diminished. And that, and that wasn't because of, like, dropout rates or anything. It was because students were removed or, for some reason, were not able to continue in school with us. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like there was sort of witch hunting, so to speak, of, of Black students under the allegations of not living within the district which is something that absolutely did not happen to white students and and also didn't happen to me.
0: Wow. Reagan, can you tell me a little bit
7: more about this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I really do believe that the the kids that were obviously black that who were targeted were kids on like athletic teams. I think a lot of families were unhappy that you know these black kids from detroit are coming in and they're the star athletes and they're getting all this credibility and no you know notoriety for winning for our teams and they felt like these people aren't even supposed to be here and complained so i think that's really where it stemmed from i i i know it was a lot of like hearsay and kind of talking of like yeah what was the hearsay though like what were the rumors you guys were hearing
4: i definitely remember hearing that white parents were following black kids home and like recording them and this was back when like people didn't have phones that had cameras on them Mm -hmm. so i remember somebody telling me a story of like a white parent following a black student home with like a video camera to try and prove that they didn't live in district wow but like i couldn't confirm who that happened to you know i just remember like hearing that Mm
7: -hmm. And I I would hear that like, so we had this like security officer who would come in and I don't even know what he really did. From what my understanding, he was really racist and he would just go around and follow all the black kids home who were like on these teams to see if they actually lived in the district or, you know, if they were like using their family's address who lived in the district to get an education and to come to the school. I remember hearing that people had to, like, come into their, like, leasing office and, like, actually prove that, you know, they're supposed to be in that apartment or they had to show it to the district or something happened where they made it more difficult to, like, get into our public schools. So what kind of
0: actions will be really needed to change the system, which led to what you guys uh, experienced at Groves?
4: It's not just about interpersonal acts of racism, right? Like, of course, it is disgusting that um, white administrators or white parents chose to accuse black students of not living in district. But that is a product of the systemic racism that's built into the way that education, housing, jobs, like everything in Detroit and in America as a whole is, is set up, like the system is set up For Black folks to to fail. The educational system in the U.S. is oriented around taxpayer dollars and that's based on, on districts which are extremely segregated by race and class. One act that folks who have some level of disposable income and have the ability to make choices about where they live and where they enroll in school is don't just live in rich white areas and enroll your kids in the public school system you know if it's feasible for you to live in a working class area and invest in the community there do so and don't just correlate whiteness with desirability i think that's really complicated right like it's not my place to tell anybody where they should live or what system they should put their kids into and I wonder what choices I will make when I when I have children.
7: I definitely agree with Maya. I think when you make friends and you and you befriend people who are different than you, that's when um, your perspectives change. I know I have friends who willingly decided to buy a house in Detroit just to be a part of that community and their teachers. And so they work in the school district and they live in that school district. In high school. We felt powerless. I don't think that we felt like we had a voice. And, you know, especially with our community, (laughs) in the Black community, we don't wanna put ourselves as like, oh, they're the angry Black family, or they always, you know, it's like, you're the problem family if you say something. So I I think a lot of times we just felt like, this is how it is, and there was no way to change that. Now with like social media and just being more aware of racism and anti-Blackness, I love to see that we're having these conversations. It's just, I want to see the fruit of it. And I think that's kind of what I'm excited to see in the future.
4: I want to echo that and add that if these conversations aren't happening with strategy, then like Reagan said, the, the fruit is, is not gon- going to be born, so to speak. Like it might make us feel good, but it doesn't recognize the different things that exist in each of our different communities and those structures of power and privilege and oppression there and so we have to figure out a way that emphasizes like our shared stake in in racial justice and in liberation in the U.S. and I think like Grace Lee Boggs with with her husband Jimmy Boggs did that really really well and I think that's why we see it in Detroit because there are those models of like what does Asian American solidarity look like and not just oh I'm an ally in your struggle but like we are in struggle together against a shared target.
0: In Brooklyn, where most of our team lives, one of those shared targets, police brutality, revealed itself as soon as protesters began marching for black lives. On May 29th, less than an hour into the first big Brooklyn protest, New York police officers began handcuffing peaceful protesters with zip ties and beating people with nightsticks they pepper-sprayed two Black elected officials. They followed protesters on their march for hours and shoved a 20-year-old woman onto the pavement so hard that she had to go to the emergency room for a concussion. It was a moment when non-Black protesters experienced some of what Black communities have known since slave patrols were created as some of the earliest forms of police in the U.S. I just felt so viscerally
2: enraged and appalled at how our city was handling it, how our mayor was handling it, the way that protesters were being treated.
0: That's Talisa Chang, one of the founders of our show. Around the time that the Ocampos were trying to start new conversations about racism and police brutality with their extended family, she was also having a weekly family call with her parents. This wasn't a situation where she had to convince people that black lives matter, but she was looking for support for the kinds of actions that she wanted to take. for the kind of society she wanted to help create.
2: I remember trying to tell them about it and trying to talk about what it felt like every day. And I was just breaking down, like crying, (laughs) like defund the police that felt so obvious. I think living here, you know, I, I have to support people in the streets. I have to support bail funds. I have to do, you know, support jail support. But I also have to
0: know what I'm doing and know why I'm doing it. Talisa saw an Instagram account that spelled out some steps on how to start a discussion around the book Are Prisons Obsolete by Angela Davis. And she decided to bring this idea for our weekly reading and discussion to the family. There's a lot of talk about meeting people
2: where they're at, like starting with how they think about things and going from there. And at this point in my life, I, I also really want people to meet me where I'm at, especially the people that are close to me in my life. And I was like, well, I could do this book club thing on my own because I'm interested in it and then turn around and try to talk to my friends and family about what I'm learning and try to bring them along on my own journey towards thinking of myself as as an abolitionist. Or we could all do it together and I can cut out that step um, and I can just kind of create the conditions in my life where the people closest to me, like my friends and my family, um, are learning along with me and that we can actually dig into this stuff together.
0: Was it hard to get everyone's buy-in?
2: I had already at that point convinced them to start finding the local bail funds in their in their areas and you know they were already sort of getting on board with what I was asking them to do um from like an acting perspective but I think everyone was like yeah let's let's do it. Let's it's it's 6 weeks, let's do it. And so I, we actually got um my parents, Thomas's mom and his two sisters, her sisters fiancé, and
0: then a group of five or six of our other friends. The group met every week, reading a chapter or two at a time. And when they had finished Our Prisons Obsolete, everybody wanted to keep going. They started reading How We Show Up by Mia Birdsong. It's a book that challenges readers to let go of American ideals of individualism and personal achievement in favor of interdependence and being deeply in touch with your community. Our producer James and I hopped on the phone with Talisa to unpack what she was learning from months of reading and discussing ideas of abolition. The North Star of the discussion group is how do we be
2: better actors? How do we connect the dots between what our life's work is and what we know about the world?
8: Well, the dynamic of... People being activated and brought into these conversations through social media also taps into something else that I think has been happening within Asian-American conversations, particularly online, which is there just seems to be this really specific focus on how guilty we should feel. I think a lot of people focus on the Tutau photo and the George Floyd video because it has this kind of viral, iconic, Mm -hmm. essentializing, like, here is the Asian role in this. (laughs) Anyone can say that is a bad person. Asians should not be like that. But that's kind of easy. And it's just more of a way of making yourself feel better instead of really zeroing in on why do we kill so many black people in this country?
0: Right. Yeah.
8: There's a big focus on speaking up. And I think this is actually particular to Asian Americans because the the racialized experience of Asian Americans is that you're silenced and and made invisible. So one of the phrases that I... I see in here a lot is just this language around you can't be silent. You have to say something. You have to say something. If you're being silent, you're being complicit. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that (laughs) before I insert my own opinion.
0: I feel like speaking up, I mean, it either could be like a really baseline sort of baby step for people who aren't politically active at all to kind of sort of dip their feet into the water and could be an entry point to explore more th- things if they're willing to say that Black Lives Matter, you know, and if that's where you're, you know, meeting us, then cool. Or I, I think that oftentimes, um, there's a lot of fatigue over the overuse of, you know, brands using these signifiers. It's really a PR and marketing move. And I think that a lot of people latched on that. And saw themselves as a brand, basically, and kind of just signaling and posturing. And, of course, we saw a lot of people and brands get into trouble for being in businesses, small businesses that, you know, signaled support for Black Lives Matters, protesters, defunding the police, all these things that they were then sort of accused of not really being behind in their entirety so, I think that it led to a lot of good discussions, for better, or for worse. Uh, I think the pressure for people to speak up did more more good than bad.
2: I think for me, it's like remains to be seen. Like, I think speaking up in some ways, and we talk about performance. Like, it's kind of the equivalent of those like safety pins. Safety you pins. The safety
4: pins. What you safety? Remember pins. I remember the safety
8: pins.
0: Hey. <laughs> okay, so I actually had to look this up. Apparently, right after Trump won the presidential election of 2016, there was a social media trend where people put safety pins on their clothes to show that they were an ally to minorities. Just like the viral black squares on social media that Hassan Minhaj criticized on his show, it came under fire as an example of virtue signaling that doesn't improve the lives of people who are suffering. Anyway. I don't think we got into this to tell anyone that they're doing the wrong thing. It's more that we wanted to answer this question about what our role, not just our opinion, is going to be as time goes on. It's not that silence is complicity,
2: it's like stasis is complicity. And these big systems, capitalism, (laughs) you know, the carceral state, They're not going to get solved in this year or in the next four years, right? So what's our place right now in this world, in this timeline? How are we going to contribute to that thinking and to that that forward momentum? That's not just going to be about speaking out. That's going to be about actually considering and having specific and thoughtful ideas about what actually is wrong, what actually is the problem, what actually needs to get done. And you have to have lots of conversations to do that with yourself and with others. And we can at least start with our friends and family, because hopefully they're going to be around with us for the long haul too.
8: I think there's something which not a lot of people say out loud, which is a lot of what would be required for us to make a big impact on the systems. And by systems, I'm specifically thinking of racist housing, education, and police systems. It cuts right to the core of what a lot of second-generation Asian American immigrants in the US today came up on. Mm-hmm. When I grew up, my parents were real estate agents. So it was very like explicit in the conversations that we had early on that success meant stay away from where black people live. And when Mexicans start moving in, then you better get out of there because your property value is going to go down and then your school's going to get bad. And then all this stuff, it was just like nothing was masked because it was just their job to take advantage of this very intentional racist system to benefit me. And I get frustrated when people aren't willing to talk as much about what are we actually willing to do, right? I have friends now who we all moved to New York, we're gentrifiers, and then we were here in our 20s and, then, and in our early 30s, and a lot of them said, cool, that was fun, now I'm just gonna move back closer to where I grew up with my family and then find a good place to raise my kids and put them in a good school. Like, we've just doomed an entire generation. <laughs> I don't want to be too extreme, but it's like that one decision and, and that centering of, can the next generation have a better life? it costs other people things in america you know the things we always hear you risk everything sacrifice everything for us so we could have a better life you want to carry on that part of the story right but it, i think it's often hard to reconcile that with what we have to do to other people in this country to to keep that vision of ourselves alive cuz like that's how our system works it, it takes away from black communities am i making sense yeah,
2: yeah. this is something we talk about in our discussion group <laughs> Going back to the topic of how we show up, this is going to be like a plug for Mia Birdsong's book. What I love about this book and what I love about what it's doing for our discussion group is it's talking about personally, what are the drawbacks of pursuing an American dream? You know, I think what this book does is illuminate how the desire to hoard, the desire to have success, you know, the desire to prioritize a certain goal of, of wealth, of ownership, of nuclear family status, isn't just bad for Black people or for society. It's it's bad for us personally, that when we focus on these things, these pursuits, that we are actually like hollowing out our lives and not creating the space for like connection and love and joy and healing and community and shared experience and like like abundance.
8: It's like you can't even care about other people and work for other people's well-being and our own collective growth until you're done working and you've made enough money. Yes. <laughs> and you like pay an absurd amount of rent and then also you don't sleep. Uh-huh. And recognizing this doesn't solve any of those problems. But no, I, this is know, a constant theme
2: in our in our discussion group. A huge part of our group is asking ourselves, what are we taking off of our plates? What professional goals am I okay with just completely dismissing? Because achieving said professional goal is less important to me than having the time to show up for people in my life and to show up for these movements. Because I can't have it all. And I don't have unlimited time and energy. And it sucks that we all have to work so much because that is what is also preventing us from organizing and and doing all these things. And so that's something that we talk about a lot. And in our group, we talk a lot about like, why is my goal to like hoard money and time? Why is my goal to be successful at this XYZ thing? Is that actually more important than being able to be there when someone in my family is having a mental health crisis and we don't want to call the cops and we need to figure out what to do, which is like something that we had to deal with this summer. So these things can be found in conversation, I hope. (laughs) I
3: don't
8: know. I think you're pointing out something, which is the point of having conversations isn't that like some people know what's up and then can tell other people and then we can all get on board. (laughs) But it's like we actually, in many cases, may not even know how to talk about it. And so it sounds like having a one time a week discussion where you can fuck up and you can be ignorant and just know that it's going to take a lot of time. Sounds really powerful because then it's not even about the book, right? Yeah. Like you finish the book, but then you ha- you have this real connection with other people. Absolutely. The doing, the things you actually could do have always been there. But I think the reality is it is actually really hard to just do things. And so maybe a way around that is just don't take it all on, on yourself. Try to make it more of a community based activity or a group activity. Then the doing, when it comes up, can be a lot easier. And it sounds like you've already experienced some of that.
2: Yeah. And I think for me, it's recognizing that sometimes there's a distinction between places in my life, you know, my work life and my freelance jobs and my organizing life, but that maybe there doesn't have to be as many distinctions and that maybe this kind of thinking can bleed throughout the rest of my life and bleed into my relationships in a really good way. And that all the people in this discussion group are going to take a little piece of that space and thinking with them as they move through their circles, building like a new way of moving
0: through the world together. This episode was produced by James Boo, Harsha Nahata, and Julia Shu. We were edited by Julia Shu and mixed by Timothy Lule. Our theme music is by Dorian Love. Thanks to the Ocampos, Maya, Reagan, and Talisa for joining the show. And I want to give a special shout-out to Jack Hsu, one of our biggest supporters on Patreon. If you want to join Jack in supporting our mission and making our work sustainable, please become a member at patreon.com slash self-evident show. You can also make a one-time donation to support the show at our website, self-evident Self Evident is a Studio to Be production made with support from our listeners. I'm Kathy Irway. Let's talk soon. Until then, keep sharing Asian America's stories.